Hi, everyone. Today is April 6, 2009. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Sri Raghavachari. He is Assistant Professor of Neurobiology at Duke University Medical Center, where he uses mathematical analyses and computational models to understand brain function. Hi, Sri. Hello. Thanks for being here. Around the room, we've got Fidel Santa Maria. Hello. Carlos Palladini. Hello. Todd Troyer. Good afternoon. And Rama Ratnam. Hi, Sama. Sri, in your work, you start with the synapse, with the idea being that it delimits everything that lies beyond, but yet all your work looking at synaptic plasticity is informed by levels of analyses that go well beyond the temporal and spatial nanoscales that you're examining in your models. In general, are these the kinds of questions that attract you and compel you to build models? I guess a better yes, question would because, be what kinds of well, questions compel you to model? Sure, but well, in some sense, what I'm trying to understand is how events at, at the nanoscale aggregate to give you behavior and function. But at least we can limit ourselves to how this synapse is a cell biological object and how does that function? How does it read its inputs and produce meaningful outputs? So that's in some sense what motivates me. And it's also amenable to mathematical analysis uh, in a different way than, say, behavior would be amenable to mathematical analysis. So. Yeah, those are the kinds of questions that interest me because there's a nice interplay between biophysics, how actually objects interact, how physical space confines signaling, for instance, as well as the biology of the fact that signaling has to occur and lead to specific outputs that are important for physiological function. Todd. Okay. So I was wondering if... Uh, if so a lot of the stuff you say, it's... it's um, amenable to mathematical analysis. A lot of what you've done is mathematical simulation, uh, right? And so I was just wondering if, so a lot of it's built on the idea that some of the principles and formalisms and the way we think about things with mass action and other things are wrong or inadequate. Let's make it more uh, generous. Um, but I was just wondering if, how many, are things starting, are principles starting to merge in terms of real other principles that emerge, or there's a lot of, is it still kind of amassing a bunch of exceptions to that if you do things with small numbers, it's different? So that's never really been very, very carefully explored in the sense, where does continuum, where do continuum approximations break down and mass action breaks down and where you have to start worrying about individual molecules bouncing around, right? Uh, the only examples that I know of, people have done a little bit of calcium in uh, calcium influx and activation in muscle cells in these uh, uh, the dyadic compartments in muscle cells. And that's the only place where I know there's been sort of a very careful, controlled <coughs> set of studies looking at where continuum approximations break down. Here in the synapse, my guess is that it doesn't make any, especially if you're interested in the variability, especially for, say, neurotransmission, the most important thing that everybody looks at is the mean receptor current, and then the variability. And so entire theories have been built on what leads to receptor synaptic receptor current variability. So either you have a difference, I mean, the variability is due to differing amounts of glutamate released, different amount of vesicles released. Any, it's anybody's guess. So I guess here is one place where the continuum approximation is not going to work. But... I'm sure that I mean, Fidel would 
could jump in as well. But there are other places, for instance, when you're looking at receptor trafficking, you know there are only about 10 or 20 or 50 amper receptors sort of in the synapse at any given time. So what sense does it make to even model them as, or think of them as a continuum field in any way? But um, one thing is the um, like to be uh, convenient to model as a continuum or as stochastic, that's basically a um, resource question. But um, uh, I think the early studies on differences between stochastic and mass action models were like in um, uh, uh, genetic regulatory networks, right? When you have very few proteins expressed, um, how the behavior of like lambda phage is going to change, and right. this is this has to do with uh, like stochastic resonance and sto in some some ways. So if you imagine that there is like a threshold in the mass action approximation, you have a curve that increases like exponentially or whatever, and it will level off eventually below that threshold. It will never reach the threshold, so you will never activate the switch. But when you have, when the stochasticity uh, wins, right, in the low number of molecules, then sometimes right. you're going to cross the threshold and then the, the behavior of the entire network or the population, uh, expression of proteins or, or, or behavior or expression of LTP or LTV uh, is going to be totally different. Right. Right. So, it be, of course, it becomes stochastic, but then the question... I think that arises now from these studies on molecular crowding is that if it is if if the probability is actually um, uh, dominated by just the variance uh, given by the diffusion coefficient and the probability of binding, right, the rate of binding, uh, when things are uh, tightly packed, then those rates of uh, reactions can change and become. I mean, uh, they can become more efficient or less efficient. And that's an emergent field. I think we, we're talking about science that has been developing in the last, what, 10 years, right? Right. Um, mm -hmm. Rama. But, um, so just coming back to the question, the initial question, why I would think that at the synaptic level you have channels that open, lots of them contribute, and that you would simply end up with something that's very classical, sort of statistical mechanical description, where you end up with some like a Boltzmann equation. Why, why, I did not quite understand why you said that at the nano domain, many of these, why the continuum hypothesis fails. I always was under the impression that you can sum over the space and you end up with a reasonable description. So again, just like what Fidel said, so for instance, uh, in the PSD, there are on the order of about 20 chemkinase holoenzymes. So chemkinase is this, classical enzyme that has been implicated in learning and memory, mostly the most attractive piece of it is the fact that it's an enzyme that can, one of its targets is itself. So it has this nice property that once it's stimulated by calcium, it phosphorylates itself. And then once that phosphorylation sort of runs its course, it just stays elevated and phosphorylates itself more or less indefinitely. So it's a kinase, but it's also a switch. So it becomes a very attractive candidate for a memory. So if you now think about that process of activation of, let's say, even a single hollow enzyme of chemkinase with its 12 or 10 subunits, 
then what you really have is a threshold process, right? So if you have less than a couple of subunits phosphorylated at any given time, the kinase drops back to its zero phosphorylated state. You push it past the threshold, all subunits are phosphorylated. Now, at this point, you really have to worry about stochasticity, right? In the sense that, well, if you trip the switch, if, the, if is, is noise tripping the switch? How do you protect noise from tripping the switch? And what if noise is a really important determinant here? And the other question is, how does... And it turns out that statistical mechanics actually starts to break down uh, fairly quickly in this situation. So you can actually write down a little set of equations for uh, exactly this process. When you kick the chemkinase switch, it sort of either gets all activated or not. And it becomes, a you can mathematically map it onto sort of a barrier crossing problem. And in which case we know from way back when, like Kramer's solution, that in that barrier crossing problem, noise is the most important determinant. But the noise is actually interesting because it's not ordinary thermal noise. It's a noise that depends on the number of molecules there are. So it's actually a very interesting calculation that results from this. So in that sense, a simple stat, stat make description actually starts to break down already here. So in that sense, yes, the nanodomain is going to behave somewhat differently from what you would expect. And the other thing is that um, in the assumption that at one point that this um, uh, idea that um, at the at small scales, if you have only a few molecules where variance is uh, prevalent, then you only have to monitor for a longer period of time or you just have to average multiple times. The fundamental assumption there is that the system is well mixed. And the assumption that many have taken is that at the biological scales of interest, there has to be a volume or a piece of membrane that is well mixed, even in the spine. But in the spine, it's, I mean, it's, I think it's the same volume of, of a bacteria, mm -hmm. like E. coli. Right, and um, it has all the molecular, I mean, like uh, C. coli has the, all, the all the, it seems to have all the molecular machinery to actually do a very sophisticated function and to be compartmentalized from the rest of the, of the cell. So at what level do you have um, a well-mixed compartment? Can you, right. can you just remind me about this term well-mixed? So well-mixed is like equal access of the molecules in the same compartment or that gradients of diffusion uh, equilibrate fast. So right? it has nothing to do with active properties? Uh, no, no. No, it's just like a well-mixed compartment will spatial be... Spatial distribution yes, completely. Yes, exactly. So at, at a certain spatial scale, all molecules are equally likely to be present everywhere. So in some sense, in a physics parlance, I'm not sure that these systems are ergodic. Yeah, As a matter of fact, there's a recent right. paper right. in PRL, I don't know if you read it, uh, that uh, when you have crowding systems, ergodicity breaks down. So then if you monitor diffusion of molecules in a system by uncaging, you will get one diffusion coefficient, uncaging, like uh, the photoactivation of molecules, and then you follow these uh, molecules that uh, before were not fluorescent, and now they're fluorescent inside a neuron. Then you follow them through time, you will get a diffusion coefficient, and that diffusion coefficient is going to be very different if you, mo if mo if you uh, monitor single particles 
moving. <coughs> so the entire fun, fun, um, basis of the science that has been applied is not applicable, right? To to and that means that then there are no well mixed system. It's not a well mixed system, at least at the scales of interest in uh, in cells. Well, this in cells and neurons. I mean, there are just other types of cells. Okay, I I fully agree with you. Uh, what, what you and what Shreya said, this is fine. Beneath, under the synapse, or inside the cell, in the spine, in the dendrite, yes, it's extremely complex. The biochemical reactions are complex. And you have all these pro probably nonlinearities as well. Right? But I'm, I'm asking also at the level of the, the synaptic mem this membrane itself, where you have your AMPA receptors, your NMDA receptors. Is it not possible to simply assume that they're just simply opening and closing stochastically and that you ultimately end up with a current that can, in principle, be described by, by say, as a Boltzmann equation. I mean, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's more, well, I don't see any fundamental nonlinearities non or problems or difficulties at the level of the receptors. No, there isn't. In there fact, isn't. Our, our assumption is right. that the receptors are simple Markov devices. Right, right. So, devices so your currents basically right. will follow essentially. Absolutely. Right. Okay. But all the interesting properties it's result from point. diffusion of either ligands or the signaling intermediates okay. following from so now, the separate Did you notice, uh, so now, so we have, you described <laughs> one type of complexity in the, in, the, in the spine and in the dendrite, where we know that you have issues with nanodomains and such, right? But do you notice something similar the in, outside in the synaptic cleft? Is there, are they likely to be, you know, do you observe similar kinds of clustering, and, you know, breakdown of ergodicity? I mean, I don't know. Do you, in the cleft? In the cleft, no. So nobody has actually done that experiment yet the there are a few sort of interesting things that come out I mean not not at the cleft but at least in the PSD right so if you mm -hmm. actually so and this is crazy speculation but it's it's something that one can think about which is if you actually do this experiment you photo label you fluorescently label PSD molecules and a subset of them you label with one color and the other bunch you label them with another color so you would say well okay so here's the PSD and it's got two colored labels, say fluorescent, like cerulean and, uh, so, and cherry, right? So yeah. this is exactly what was done. So you, And then you photo bleach one of them, right? So ordinarily you would expect, okay, so things should be well mixed, well mixed at right. this point. Turns out it isn't the case. So whatever you photo bleach, let's say you, make, you photo bleach this cerulean piece, which is formed like a little donut hole in the middle, right? That donut hole remains for about five minutes. That's about as long as you can image before you kill the cell. So even at that scale, there's no well-mixed behavior. So it's sort of tempting to speculate. No, I don't know. This is completely crazy. But that some of the features this resembles is what is uh, a glass, right? So if you just take a bunch of spheres and just sort of start packing them together, they become, at some point, at some volume fraction, they become, mm -hmm. they undergo a glass transition, where everything is just jammed, right? Anybody who's driven in traffic knows exactly what right. I'm talking about. So that's exactly what's happening here. And there's several aspects which, in the PSD, which are amenable to this. You have diffusible molecules that can detach and attach, but then they also have structural constraints. They're big, right? They're 5, 10 nanometers in diameter, and they can bind to each other. So you can essentially form this little glassy state, which is metastable, holds the PSD together and would have exactly the same properties as mm. you would observe when you do this photobleaching. So, but then we also know that glassy states are highly non-equilibrium mm -hmm. states. They sort of arise from simple stat med, but then they become 
they're completely different now. It's a very curious property of non-equilibrium stack mech anyway. So there's some interest. So I don't know. The the reason why I ask the question, I think to some extent it's important, is it's, it would be nice to know where are the really complex modeling challenges. If you look at this kind of a problem, presynaptic, cleft postsynaptic, with all those complex biochemical reactions taking place, where should we focus on? What should we focus on? What is really the difficult, what are the difficult problems and where do they occur? And what approaches do you take? Which, I mean, goes to the heart of what you're doing, but I was just wanting sort of a clarification of where, you know, all these different elements. Well, so one of the things that always has fascinated me is pretty much every PSD protein turns over within tens of hours, right? But, and, and all interactions are basically a bunch of hydrogen bonds, right? All the PDZ domain interactions are, and the hydrogen bonds are what, a few KBT? Yeah. So how do you hold a structure that's going to be permanent over the scale of the animal's age with components that essentially turn over every 10 hours and they're linked together by a bunch of weak bonds? So what what's the design principle here? And the other one, of course, the other constraint is that plasticity makes these things grow or mm -hmm. shrink. So you have to have this aspect into any model, any conceptual basis that you can think of. So that's... I think that's and that's the biggest challenge in a way. I mean, can you make a model of the PSD if you just sort of go out and pull out all the node PDB stru database right, structures right. and start assembling them like in a tinker toy fashion? Can you assemble a PSD that has all of these constraints satisfied? Yeah. But the other challenge is, of course, if it's an information processing device. I mean, what is the PSD computing? I mean. I just sort of made the system very simplified and said chemkinase is it, right? So it's a memory molecule. Mm -hmm. And that, that was sort of the centric view for a lot of people for a while. But the question is, what are the other 997 proteins of which there are about 1,000 copies yeah. are doing? Well, and the, and the PSD is just a section yeah. of the spine. Mm -hmm. Right. Right, there's everything else, then you have your scaffolding proteins, and if you're in the interesting spine, like in the Virginia cell, then you have the endoplasmic reticulum, right there, IP3 receptors, and so on, right? So the distribution of the individual IP3 receptors might be important, and the link with Homer um, and the IP3 receptor. Um, but another thing that I wanted to mention, um, now that you, you talked about um, Rama, about um, that sure we can uh, the, the, the current that flows through channels can be just like a classical uh, current, right? But if it is a glass, as Sri says, then the vibrational modes yeah, of these proteins are probably going to change. Yeah. Okay, there's some evidence in other systems of mechanical uh, interactions of channels, right, that you touch the cell and then just through mechanical perturbation, the entire, all the channels are going to open. Right. So, I mean, I would like to speculate, I mean, I'm just going to say that, I, yeah. I'm just going to speculate that that uh, if everything is tightly packed in the, in the postsynaptic density, yeah. 
then NMDAs are going to behave the same way. But as you have evidence of that. I no, mean, no. Like it's a spin glass, and that it just flips states. I mean, you can move it from you know spin up. Right, but down I, I don't have any evidence on yeah. the synapse. But uh, uh, how would you, you even you, test that? Huh? How would you I'm, even test that? I don't even know. Receptor currents would just would be act like a switch. It's, it's switching device, right? It goes from on to off. You either I I don't know. I mean, well, yeah. it's not definitive. That's yeah. Uh, yeah, highly speculative. Yeah, and yeah. also it's hard to measure. I mean, hard to do anything with. I mean, of a, for a native receptor in a spine, right? I mean, it's pretty hard to do anything with right, it. Right. Uh, you can pull them out in a hex. I mean, you can express it heterologously in a hex cell or something and measure currents, but then you're talking about a completely different situation. But let me come, now both of you, Sri and you, Fidel, both of you are doing some, so I want to come back to this again, this niche of nanodomains, the fact that you don't have well-mixed systems and, you know, and all the kind of complexity that it engenders. What I would like to know is that if you were to incorporate these into your models, do they are they sufficient to explain the phenomena? Are they simply just constraints you have to live with and build into your model? Or are they actually, in some sense, fundamentally responsible for for the emergent phenomena? Or do you need are there other components that you need to put in? So, you know, it just seems to me like a very complex model, but does it explain? Is it does it have sufficient explaining power in that sense? Am I am I making sense or am I sure? Sure. Uh well, it is well, well, not well known, but in the last year, last four months, there have been two papers in the literature which have essentially argued that chemkinase activation is confined to the nanodomain of either the L-type calcium channel or the NMDA receptor. And because it gets activated in the nanodomain of the L-type channel, it actually triggers uh, a set of gene regulatory cascades. Uh, which are exquisitely sensitive to the fact that it's in this nanodomain. Right? Okay. So, in that sense, it's not a constraint that we sort of put in or have to live with, but it's mm-hmm. sort of an integral feature. It's a feature of, yeah. And in fact, you have, I mean, there's this whole old story about if you have an event happening at a synapse and the ultimate outcome is to trigger a set of regulatory, gene regulatory cascades in the nucleus well, there are synapses all over the place. How do you communicate anything down to the nucleus, right? So the the and you can't rely on sort of nuclear calcium elevations or you can't rely on global calcium elevations to drive calcium-dependent transcription, which is sort of one of the most integral features of transcription of neurons. So this is sort of a nice way to ensure that you have a private source uh, or a private signaling channel that allows... L-type channels, let's say, activated at certain synapses to actually drive transcription. Right? So these are papers from uh, uh, Dick Chen's lab in, that just come out. Uh, it's been, it's sort of Carl Desbrook's work, <laughs> thesis work, all the way now to actually making sure that it is in the nanodomain, I mean, demonstrably proving that. So it is actually seemingly an integral design feature of the system rather than something that we have to live with. So that's what, if you if you step way back, I was just kind of wondering if this so it's a very new set of questions and new perspectives on lots of things, and so I was wondering if it really kind of uh, makes you think about um, that old ways of thinking about things are are wrong or we thought about things improperly or it gives you a whole new set of possible explanations for things that were just accepted like we know that there's LTP there's 
things say something has to stick around for a long time and it was unknown what it is right right and then now we have a whole bunch of new possibilities for exploring explorations about what that mechanism is and it may not really change the way of the things that we didn't know mechanistically or things macroscopically it may not change the perspective of you know what neurons do overall or it may so i don't know which you see or is it some combination well, of both it's probably a combination of both. I mean, the fact is that LTP is an empirically observed phenomenon, right? So it doesn't matter whether it's CAM kinase is the switch that triggers LTP or is it a structural change in the synapse that is LTP or is it PKM SATA that's LTP? I mean, we don't know, right? But nevertheless, the at an abstract level, it's a persistent change in the synapse. So that, if your model is if your higher level of meta models are predicated on having an event that occurs that persists for a long time, then none of those questions, for instance, a neural network function will not be altered. I mean, knowing whether it's CAM kinase or it's something else doesn't change any anything about the model of a network, per se. Right? On the other hand, it does affect what drugs you would sort of put in to muck around with LTP at the synapse. So it depends on what questions you're asking, in a way, right? What level you're coming up with. But, but I would like to put forward two, two things there, that uh, one is a pharmacology, right? If you're, I mean, we're dealing about basic science at this point, but if we were talking about some a mental disorder, and then your hypothesis is that everything is through binding and, and biochemical reactions in a well-mixed system without taking into account the structure that the structure is playing a, a strong role in keeping, for example, some receptors high um, abnormally, then you will be developing drugs for the... Uh, probably at the end you will get the same result, but, but maybe you can do it easier by understanding the underlying biophysical processes that are keeping those receptors in a high concentration and then attacking the production of, of, of the molecules that are being crowded there um, uh, to solve the problem. So yeah. the biophysical importance. And the other is an engineering part in synthetic biology. If we, if we are going to still be doing a reverse engineering in trying to devise computers and robots and whatever inspired in biology, understanding how biology exploits uh, and makes efficient computations at low levels of molecules with high noise, supposedly, then that, that'll be quite interesting, right? I, at least. Yeah. I mean, in support of what Fidel just said, there's, for instance, one of the recent studies that came out from uh, a few labs in Morgan Sheng, uh, notably, showed that one of the scaffolding proteins of the synapse, Shank, is very important, or it is actually compromised in some way in, auto, in its, a certain class of autistic disorders, right? Now, it... One at least one profitable line of inquiry could be that is it because of the scaffolding function, in some sense crowding the synapse in a way, is what is important in, or is what determines the phenotype of autism at the end of the day, is a reasonable question. So in that sense, yeah, uh, knowing the mechanisms important uh, for solving a particular problem in this case. I want to get back to something 
that you sort of touched upon. When, when John Lisman was here, he talked a little bit about how experimentally constrained modeling, which is you know, clearly what you do, is sometimes well served by considering purely theoretical solutions to problems that have infinite degrees of freedom. You know, he mentioned robotics and um, more engineering types of questions. So how, where do you place yourself on the experimentalist versus theoretician continuum? Do you see them as a, do you see theoretical problems just as a purely, as an exercise useful? Um, yes and no, right? I mean, if, for instance, thinking about the PSD as a class is a completely theoretical abstract creation that you could come up with. On the other hand, you have to come up with an ext extremely testable question mm -hmm. that an experimentalist is willing to go out and do the experiment and come back and say, well, you're completely wrong and you're barking up the wrong tree here. So at this point, I've almost become somebody who's much more experimentally minded, saying, well, is this experiment going to work? So that's the only reason to consider these class of models at this point. And if the experiment's not going to work, or is it something that is an impossible experiment, then it's not necessarily worth entertaining that class of models in a way, because... That might just be because you're an assistant professor, though. That's the other thing. Yes. We'll check back in a, in a few years, yeah. I guess. I was just wondering if you can you can have an interest in building devices, and you know that have nothing to do with the biology. You want to build, let's say, some some device, a robot with memory. Okay. My my point of view is simply this: that you can, if you're trying to understand biological memory and how biological biological organisms work, then yes, we need to study at this very detailed level. But if, if we know that in designing biological robots with memory, that we are really going to be using chips, microcircuits, right? Very large, you know, arrays of uh, gates, um, VLSI, typically. So why would we need to even, what, what are we gaining? What is the insight we're gaining from the biological system that we would really think to apply to engineer devices when we know that the kind of tools or kind of building blocks that you're going to use are going to be completely different. So, well, so since you brought up robots, and I can go back to machine vision, right? And recognizing ob object recognition is a classic case, right? So most, computer, most computers and machine vision programs are fairly miserable at Absolutely. object recognition. So you're right that perhaps and this is debatable, that perhaps the hardware requirements are not that important and you really want to think about well, if you want to really make a robust face recognition and object recognition system, you would use algorithms that the most powerful object recognition system on the earth, mm -hmm. human brains can do so, right? So you can start figuring out the biology and say, well, how does the brain solve various problems? So shape, shading, size, uh, various rotational invariances, etc. A chair is a chair whichever perspective you look at it, even though the image on the retina is going to be very different. So from there, you can draw a lot on the biology. But sometimes, I don't know, uh, Tony Bell and a few other people yeah. have this idea that you cannot, at least if you want to do biologically inspired uh, machines, you cannot really divorce yourself from the fact that the hardware is as much the software for biological computation in a way, right? I mean, the way channels work right. actually endows them with a certain set of computations right. that... But but then, okay, so let's go back to that. There was a, the, this, you were saying that you observe these at many different timescales, right? You know, transmitter release going all the way up to memory itself. They span from 
nanoseconds maybe, all the way up to hours. So if you were really wanting to focus on mechanisms, which is completely stripped off the notion of hardware uh, in designing robots, if you were to focus on the mechanism that actually endows robots with the kind of memory and capabilities that, say, humans have, what is the scale that you should be focusing on? Which, in this hierarchy, going from the very smallest to the largest, where, in this level, should you be looking for mechanisms that can actually be implemented? Or is that a reasonable question? What would you say, Todd? I would imagine it's the network level that you would focus on. You have to focus on everything. <laughs> oh, right, Todd. <laughs> no, but it depends on what the question is, what the problem is, right? So, you know, I wouldn't look at a dendritic spine to do face recognition, right? Right. Um, but it depends on what your problem is. But Take memory. Take memory. Well, memory's not a well, problem. Yeah. Memory's not a problem, no. like a, a well-defined problem. Because right. well, it's not even a well-defined word. So, well, no, no, but I mean, no, no, no. I mean, one problem that is quite important in robotics is like climbing stairs. Okay. Right? So that that is a super sophisticated problem. Okay. Right? Look it up. There are no... Yeah. Well, the robots are really crappy. Right? Because you, you require identifying, identifying the stairs if you're going to make an entire... Uh, machine, right? And then uh, uh, gate control, right? And balancing your weight at every single step. So it's a highly sophisticated uh, uh, problem. And maybe there you need scales of integration, right? From the little vibrations you get on your mm -hmm. foot as you step, and from the beginning until the end of your step, and as you plan the, the next uh, food, and then your change of perspective to know if you have finished climbing the stairs or not. So maybe there you need this understanding. Maybe you don't need the uh, specific biophysical algorithms implemented by nature, mm -hmm. but there is a lack of understanding in the integration of... Um, uh, of scales of processing, okay. right? A processor, I mean, they, they rely on um, running algorithms more or less at the same scale. I mean, they look at uh, pixels for face recognition, and then probably they run a PCA or something like that to get a space of faces and then match them and do some, uh, what did they do, like, um, not splines, but... Um, Anyway, so, no, so, so yeah, so, I can buy so, that. But yeah. but maybe you need um, uh, analysis of correlations at multiple uh, time, time scales, scales. and yeah. spatial scales, right? To to and uh, develop algorithms in that in that direction. And I think the biology is um, is clearly telling us, or the, the, the experiments show that there is an integration of uh, multiple scales, as you mentioned, from uh, microsecond to hours. Uh, one one thing that I've been interested in is like for example like uh, um, cholesterol, right? Cholesterol varies in the terms of days or months, but then cholesterol can also affect LTP, right? So how how do they relate with each other, right? How does that uh, change in cholesterol over time, which is a systems biology question, affect something that happens in in the terms of minutes? Yeah, so if you go, one way to go, go back is a real theoretician, right? You could ask the question about what 
So these are not well mixed systems and whatever. So it's like saying things are not linear. It doesn't tell, tell you what they are, right. Right? right? And so if you uncover various principles that maybe biology uses, maybe it is inherent in the way the biology is structured because they are built this way, but then there are various principles that are very robust to be used out of these uh, nano domains, right? And they actually don't have to be even spatial domains. When you when you extract the principles theoretically, they may not even have to be spatial domains. So you may, you know, people always ask for we need some new mathematics. I always get very skeptical about that. But there may be new principles, right, of that come out of the way that the differences between something that's well mixed and something that's not that can be used in an analogous way to do something that's rich and robust or multi-scale or something like that. Because one of the things that does happen with diffusion and other stuff, it wipes out differences of scales. Right. Uh, and so there may be something very general that these assumptions that are often built in with the way we think about things just make it impossible to do something that's pretty complicated. But one thing to, to play devil's advocate here is that, sure, maybe the system is not well-mixed at multiple timescales, but this is just a structure. Maybe evolution and all the biochemistry is there to make it well-mixed. Look, all these active transport mechanisms. So you always have to, like... Think on the opposite, right? I mean, there, there was this debate in in, uh, uh, in neuronal integration, electrical integration of synapses. That well, yeah, sure, the neurons are the most polar uh, cells in in the body in nature, and uh, so therefore the structure of the dendrite uh, will determine the function, right? But some other people will say, well, all the active properties of the dendrites are to make to compensate for the distances traveled through the dendrite. So at the end, you have a point source neuron, right? But I mean, I'll, ju I'll just say that. But so I believe that I mean, uh, this complexity uh, measure as the breakdown of of uh, the well mixed hypothesis will have significant consequences. But uh, you also have to think about the opposite. Yeah, I mean, it's another analogy. Analogy is the is the question of coding just by rates, and so you have some simple analog thing, and people argue whether individual spikes in various processing is that important or not. And certainly, rates not everything. You can show that that notion breaks down, but has it really? How much has it added in particular principles of kind of competing principles here and there? It works, and whether that's fundamentally. Uh, Different or, or not? It's just an open question. It's to say, I think it's just kind of an, an analogous kind of thing. Right. There's certainly, right. obviously, it makes a difference, <laughs> and it's not all one one scale. But is it really fundamentally crucial, crucially different for this computation or not? Henry, thanks for for joining us, uh, Sri Raghavishari. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thanks, everyone. Okay. Thank you.